now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Delphi Podcast. I'm Tom Shaughnessy, and I help lead Delphi Ventures, as well as host some of the most in-the-weeds and thought-provoking guests across crypto, spanning layer ones to DeFi, NFTs, and beyond. The goal is to have fun, but also to dive deep and offer foundational episodes on projects and founders. Also, check out our research on Delphi Digital or miss out on the most compelling research there is. It's up to you. As a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any security or token or to make any financial decisions. Delphi Ventures may hold tokens mentioned, so check out our transparency page in the show notes for more info. With that, let's dive in. See you guys on the other side. Hi, everyone. Really excited to share with you my episode with Juan Benet, who's the founder of Protocol Labs and the creator of both IPFS and Filecoin. Juan starts out Delphi's Web3 series, where we'll be featuring over 10 episodes covering Web3, and he walks us through the history of Web1 being just read, Web2 being read-write, and his version of Web3, which is describing interactions um, in a verifiable way, modeling the course of value and the relationships in the economy in a verifiable way in Web3 so that we can create a new world. He goes into why software is going to eat economics and law, how people will interact with global communities once we have full-fledged um, Web3, and he also drives into human rights, how Facebook will look different, how the Web2 incumbents will react, and kind of a few dystopian examples of how this all could play out. He also drives into IPFS and Filecoin and the role that they play within a Web3 future. Really excited to share this episode with you. Juan has been around the space for 10 plus years and created IPFS a long time ago. So he has a lot of knowledge. He's seen a lot of market cycles. Uh, so really excited to share this episode with you. With that, we could dive in. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Delphi podcast. I'm your host and one of the co-founders of Delphi, Tom Shaughnessy. And today I'm thrilled to have on Juan Benet, who is the founder of Protocol Labs and one of the creators of both IPFS and Filecoin. I think everybody knows Filecoin as a leading decentralized storage play. Um, those familiar with the podcast remember we also had two separate episodes on Filecoin. I uh, went with Colin and one with ZX on Filecoin and their token econ. Uh, Juan, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing great. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, super excited to be here in the podcast. Yeah, no, super excited to have you. I mean, so you're first in our Web3 series. Pretty excited to have you on. Um, really excited to just share the content of what we'll find through the series for, for Delphi and broadly. But to dive into you, on, tell us a bit about your background. Uh, so I uh, studied computer science and um, I kind of grew up on the internet uh, when I was a kid. So I started programming, programming early, um, probably around you know, making websites and so on. I got into uh, computers through video games. And so um, you know, making websites and so on, and then kind of uh, making games and, and whatnot. Um, uh, I was born in Mexico, uh, and so I grew up in uh, in Latin America. I had a pretty different uh, experience uh, growing up than I think a lot of people in in um, in you know sort of like traditional uh, tech and so on. Um, I studied in the in the U.S. Um, started computer science, went into many different uh, parts of technology and so on. Also, get really into uh, biotech and a few other. Um, uh, branches of, of science and tech and, and whatnot. Uh, I'm an extremely like, techno-optimist, and so this is uh, probably something that you'll hear uh, from me uh, time and time again in, in different different contexts. Um, I'm a student of history, and from my point of view, looking at the story of humanity, um, it's just been this amazing story of um, 
greater and greater progress over time. Uh, there's definitely some massive highs and lows along the way, but uh, just over time, this this massive improvement of standard of living and quality of life uh, uh, for most humans broadly and, and so on. And a lot of that comes on the back of uh, great improvement in knowledge and technology and so on. And so most of my time uh, uh, goes into thinking about much better ways of uh, creating new uh, solutions for large-scale problems and diffusing uh, the, uh, the access to those solutions uh, over time. And that's one of the things that brought me to crypto uh, early on is uh, realizing and recognizing the Web3 and crypto space as the avenue of giving um, uh, access to lots of people around the planet to the kind of foundational primitives of how to make uh, breakthrough uh, computing innovations uh, and make them accessible to to be run by many participants around the world. Uh, there's something extremely powerful about how the computing infrastructure is being built now, um, and so you know, sort of like that's that's what brought me in. And uh, yeah, I consider myself kind of a uh, uh, sort of like citizen of the internet in a sense. Um, I've been very uh, kind of super inspired by all the amazing things that have come out of the internet. And even though right now. Uh, maybe locally, we might feel um, there's a lot of people kind of with down narratives on the internet um, because of all of the misinformation and disinformation campaigns and so on. Um, and you know, people forget that like that's that stuff's been happening for uh, decades, centuries, millennia. Uh, it's just like a different version of it. Um, and in reality, the the internet has just brought massive amounts of progress and benefit to humanity. And so, in that, we'll continue. Uh, sorry, this is probably more than you asked for in in one in one question, but uh, that's. I don't know, my background. No, it's great to color, right? You're getting into your passion and, and what drives you in the space, which is important. I mean, one kind of personal question, I mean, is it kind of daunting? I mean, you're somebody that has a fantastic understanding of how large and just the scope of Web2 companies, whether it's at the app play or infrastructure, like, does it ever feel a little daunting trying to take that on and basically reinvent the entire fabric of Web2? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's challenging to uh, just deal with the level of change at the pace that it needs to hit. And so there's, it's definitely hard and so on. Um, but I think it's just, um, I don't know, it's like it, changing the world today is dramatically easier than 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and so on. And so I think like um, it is definitely daunting and difficult. And there's a lot of groups that want these systems to fail and a lot of groups with massive vested interests in the traditional way of doing things that um, don't they sort of like want to slow down these approaches. Um, and there's definitely large groups with um, for whom decentralization and for whom um, broader networks that are more international, um, you know, pose a challenge to their, their local uh, environments and their, their forms of control and so on. Uh, so th there's going to be like significant challenges along the way, but for me, no, I, I think it's um, super exciting, super fun, uh, uh, really interesting challenges and so on. You get to kind of learn a ton from the past and pick up tons of really good ideas that either were successful or were unsuccessful, but some, some of those ideas um, were sort of ahead of their time and you can try them again and sometimes they, they now work and, and so on. A lot of the Web3 crypto space uh, has been putting into play a lot of ideas that had been um, sort of in the air for a few decades uh, and had been tried a few times, but never quite successfully. And now they're succeeding. And so it's been uh, really awesome to be able to uh, to do that. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. It's like, I find it way more exciting than, than daunting. Uh, 
Oh, that, that's totally fair. And, you know, I guess me and my partners and, and those within Delphi, like we go back and forth a lot on what exactly Web3 is, right? And, and frankly, we've come to this realization that like, you know, how the hell would you even sum up Web2, right? Like there's, there's so many um, things offered through Web2 that you can't sum it up to like one or two bullets, right? So, you know, trying to do that with Web3 is also kind of hard, but it's also a little buzzwordy. You know, what exactly would you say are like the core tenets of Web3, right? Like, are, are there certain things like data ownership or, you know, developers being able to build apps and port data really easily? Like, I'm just trying to understand and get a handle on, you know, what exactly Web3 is. Yeah. Um, I think that this is, uh, and, and I'm going to attempt my my version of this, and this is something that I've um, uh, thought a lot about and have spoken about here and there. Um, and my views are maybe a bit nuanced and uh, maybe different than some of like the larger um, uh, kind of more in the moment or in vogue perspectives. Um, I think things like ownership and so on are hooking into a more fundamental change. So what's really different about Web3 is more fundamental that, than an ownership. Um, uh, I sort of brought back the whole, um, you know, Web1 uh, is read-only, Web2 is read-write, Web3 is read-write uh, trust. Uh, that's how I, I described it. Uh, this has been sort of like rebranded as read-write-own. Um, I think own is like not, doesn't quite grab onto the, the really fundamental change that's happening. Um, at the end of the day, I tend to look at this as different technological capabilities that are being added to the internet. So you can think of like the, the early internet era, you know, pre-web as the process of, of just connecting the whole world of computers uh, and creating kind of a routable layer where people could send messages to each other. Different people uh, writing programs around the world could just send messages to each other. And so this was um, primarily about wiring up everything and just enabling a basic communications layer. After that, the invention of the web uh, created this portable application platform that enabled you to uh, describe at first documents, but later on full applications uh, that were distributed through this internet layer. Um, and the first one was about kind of content publishing and putting it, disseminating information and so on. Um, and sort of see that as, as like this read-only moment. Like, of course, there was some amount of dynamism and read-write-ness to it. Uh, but predominantly, most of the activity was uh, read-only. If you were a publisher, you were in a different category or, um, as most users of the web. Uh, the big transition to Web 2 happened when the technologies around making dynamic, programmable applications, giving access to many users, um, opened up the rails for being able to make all the content read-write. So this is all of the social networks, things like Wikipedia, things like um, blogs and so on, uh, w social media, um, many different kinds of games and so on. Uh, and that, that entire you know, set of platforms uh, enabling a lot of participants to come together and contribute pieces of information and so on uh, form the, the core of Web2. And the big shift now is that the internet is getting a new, pr a new wave of primitives, which is not just the ability to publish content or the ability to make it dynamic and read-write by multiple parties, but the ability to describe interactions in a verifiable way, describe transactions that are going to be um, agreed upon by all parties in the network and that you can fundamentally trust in the long term. And so that's, that's how you build things like property rights and ownership. So ownership can be layered on top of that. Uh, but you can also create new things that have nothing to do with ownership. You can do things like um, 
have uh, new economic structures that are about sharing value or about uh, modeling the course of value going through some uh, set of kind of value creation endeavors, where it's not really about owning something, but it's about modeling the relationships between participants in an economy. Um, and and so you have like this, this really fundamental change that's happening to the internet infrastructure and later on, and, it's, and then on top of that, all the applications and so on, um, that enables people to just program interactions to be verifiable so that uh, people around the world can trust them uh, in, in the very long term. And, and to the point where not even large corporations or even nation states can overturn. And that's a fundamentally very different kind of thing than the web was uh, before, right? So the, the moment where you can have self-sovereign identity or where you can um, start having um, establishing certain kinds of rights in platforms and bake those in into the layers of the internet to the point where nobody can prevent them. So for example, rights like being able to communicate with other people around the world. Uh, like today, that's kind of um, something nice to have uh, that people see as like um, something that uh, is sort of enabled but but could be removed. I think it would be a fantastic, you know, from a human rights perspective to arrive at, a, at an internet platform that could bake that into the layers of the internet to the point where like nobody could deny that those kinds of rights. Uh, and so that's what Web3 is about. It's about um, thinking about all of these different capabilities and constructing them um, in code um, using economics uh, and so on to create a, a new internet platform um, that bakes in all of those, those primitives uh, to be able to create applications that people can trust in the very long term. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting so, know, Maybe a long-winded answer, but... <laughs> no, no, not long-winded at all. It's actually a super interesting answer. I haven't seen that written or described in like the way that you were describing it, and it actually makes a lot of sense. So when you say that Web3 is... Well, so Web1 is read, Web2 is read-write, Web3 you describe as like describing interactions in a verifiable way. You wouldn't describe this, though, as like, you know like open API access to Facebook or something, right? Like, you know, I follow on, he follows me, but you're talking more about like modeling every relationship within like an economy or a DAO or a community where you could track value flows or, or does it not have to be linked to value? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think of it as being able to create an, a platform or an application where you can be explicit about the mechanisms about that platform. So what does following mean? What are the um, what does what are the capabilities and rights that following gives you, and bake those in into the system, and that's it. And have that be run by by the community of participants uh, running that that protocol and that network um, without the power of then later coming around and taking that away. And so it's it's a it's kind of like establishing, and then this is kind of why people tend to think about it as ownership. It's it's an invention on the power of being able to establish property rights. At the end of the day, this is um, software eats economics and law. And so if you can make programmable instruments and you can make programmable agreements and contracts and so on, then on top of that, you can build social contracts and create rights, or you can build um, uh, property contracts and therefore give property rights and so on. And, and so all of these other forms like ownership and so on flow from that. Uh, but the, the the power of the innovation is much bigger than that. It's much more fundamental. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if these primitives give rise to the first internet native nations. Um, I, th I think it's like that level of a 
of a, of a potential. Um, it's going to take a while for those kinds of things to emerge, uh, but that's sort of where we're headed. Is there any way in the traditional world that you can see this happening? Like, would there be any way for people around the world to come together to, you know, supersede like their borders and create like a nation state online without Web3? That's a great question. So without Web3, I don't think it's possible. Uh, I think ultimately the, you know, Web1 and Web2 got totally um, sort of like control, like borders were sprung up and so on. You, you can go back to this. Uh, so this very famous Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace um, that John Perry Barlow uh, gave, I think, at, um, that was like way back. It's a fantastic speech. Uh, you can go, go find it online and so on. And it's very hopeful for the future. Um, but I think ultimately what, what happened is the Internet got fragmented based on where different platforms were operated from. And so there was no ability to say... Um, like, you know, in sci-fi, we had like the, con the concept of cyberspace and later on, like the metaverse and so on. And so there was no way of saying this, this platform is run from cyberspace or it's about cyberspace or, or there was no ability to, to describe it as a location in, 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 a, uh, in the world or, or a jurisdiction according to the UN or something like that. Um, and so because of that, the, these systems could not work that way. I think with Web3 and crypto, we're getting... One of the fundamental foundational primitives to that, which is the ability to create contracts and have the basics of law in place. Uh, once you have contracts and the basics of law, you can build economies on top of that. And so this is why you get cryptocurrencies and um, uh, different kinds of digital assets and so on. Um, and and, and that's, those are like fundamental useful primitives that can give rise to something much bigger than that. Um, but I, whether or not we will see kind of the first wave of internet first nations emerge out of this. Um, who knows? Like we, we might need, um, you know, there's this theory around um, nation states that like you, you sort of like need, uh, you know, you need recognition from the UN and so on. And part of that is having land. And so what happens on the internet when like people are actually not interested in, <laughs> in land and you don't have like a constant of land and, and so on, or, or where you don't have like an army to defend it or something like that. And and so th there's some like big questions there, but in terms of when, where people spend their their time and their waking hours and their energy and their value creation and their attention and so on, um, it's increasingly shifting to the internet, not to their, you know, the, the geo geography around them in, in the given moment that they're in. And so I don't know if this will mean some like new kind of entity emerges that's somewhere between a corporation and a nation state that like we then learn to associate with, or we get, end up with, um, you know, kind of uh, crypto networks being sort of, on the order of small nation states and and you know, people being able to get citizenship in in a crypto network or something like that, I I, I don't know. We'll, we'll we'll find out, but we'll probably see this happen in, over the next 10, 20 years. No, it's a it's a great answer and it's a really cool way to think about it. I guess I'm trying not to get stuck in like basic examples of like what does Facebook look in Web three because this is much bigger than that. But for the end consumer around the world, most of them like don't care about how protocols work. They don't want to look at code. They don't really care about specifics or you know, the complicated things. What do you think the consumers gain from this? Like, you know, 10 years from now, you know, Joe Schmo logs onto his computer in a Web3 world. Like, you know, what, what do you think he actually gets from all of this work that he doesn't get from Web2? So maybe I'll describe two categories um, of things. So like the first one will be about, um, you know, stronger, stronger resilience and dependability. So today, um, most applications that you use uh, on the internet are sort of dependent on whether or not 
the current platform that you're using continues wants to continue using uh, providing the service. Uh, and so this is why you see many applications being shut down or access to certain applications being shut down for a community of users or um, certain countries losing access to certain certain things. Um, and this is where, for example, uh, many really lucky people around the world don't have to worry about this because they live in, in relatively free societies, but um, there's a bunch of people on the planet, like in, to the tone of hundreds of millions or billions, if you, depending on how you draw a line, um, that really can't talk about certain things uh, with each other or with the world or ask certain questions. And their information is carefully monitored and they might have you know, face certain repercussions depending on like how they think about things. Um, and they're subject to all kinds of, um, again, misinformation attacks and so on. And so building an information platform and kind of digital life environment that is um, kind of based on sort of enlightenment values and, and freedoms and civil rights and so on is really important. And today that is sort of dependent on the interpretation of a company somewhere. And I think it's important to bring, to really establish kind of like a rights orientation to, to these systems. Now, the second I would say is like the, the maybe the more shiny, shinier and more interesting uh, sort of use cases that I think a lot of people will reflect on is, um, you know, I think the whole rise of NFTs is, a, is a, an example of what happens when a, a, an economy gets more decentralized and more democratized. So opening up the access for financial primitives around art uh, created the, the whole rise of 2D and 3D NFT environments, and that enabled uh, tons of people around the world to make a living producing art that they wanted to make um, that before probably wouldn't have been, uh, wouldn't have passed by kind of centralized publisher uh, perspective or opinion. And, you know, somebody should run the numbers on this and figure out how many artists around the world um, now were able to kind of have a, um, have a living wage and be able to uh, actually follow their passion in a, in a pretty different um, uh, way than I think would have been supported by, by traditional, traditional structures. That's one piece. Um, another piece is much uh, more personalizable control over um, kind of the algorithms that govern a bunch of the social networks. So today, social networks tend to be these fully centrally planned and centrally controlled systems that then enforce one set of values over the whole thing. For the most part, I think there are a few notable examples that are uh, maybe trying to fight, fight that, but for the most part, they tend to be. Um, and this is strongly enforced by the jurisdictions in which those social networks exist. And so I think we might get to a point where um, social networks and systems work more like email, where anybody, um, you know, you have like a certain set of primitives and expectations over who can say what to whom and whatnot, um, and not kind of run the risk of being totally censored or being spied upon based on what, what you're saying to, to whoever and, and whatnot. And so th I think that might cause a very significant shift um, in people's use of use of these systems. So it's kind of like more, more fundamental, more fundamental stuff. Um, I think there is uh, also, I'm super excited about like the, the ability of building um, what, what has previously sort of been described as metaverse or cyberspace, where, where you now have a proper environment, like kind of like a 3D oriented environment and interface for computing, where um, you can have sort of like the equivalent of um, of social environments where people can gather um, and where people can interact uh, in, in, you know, the traditional typical ways, so like whether it's people just hanging out or uh, playing a board game or um, uh, 
looking at art together or watching a movie and, and all of that in through a computing environment with anybody else on the planet. Um, and I think those systems are uh, right now, there's been a bunch of attempts to do things like this, but they haven't quite worked. And I think one of the big, big reasons why is that it actually requires a, a massive amount of UX effort and artist effort to make those experiences really high quality. And my sense is that if we, if we create um, a new economic environment where um, the people creating these platforms are go going to greatly benefit um, uh, both in terms of their, their uh, control of these platforms in the long term and the financial interest in, in the value flow that gets created out of these, um, we're actually going to see a lot more people participating in creating these things. Uh, so my sense is that NFTs are going to give rise to the metaverse in a way that um, very few other things could have. Um, I actually would bet way more on a an NFT-powered metaverse than, say, on any metaverse built by a single a single company. Um, and a big part of that is because once you enter that range of experience, um, you sort of need a, a very large and diverse set of perspectives creating a bunch of different environments that will appeal to lots of people around the planet. And you need them at extremely high quality, meaning you need hundreds of thousands of hours of artist time and creator time devoted to crafting those experiences. And now we're talking about like dramatically more expensive to produce um, experiences and environments than most people are used to in terms of websites. And I think that that can be achieved in only two ways. One is giving financial access to a lot more artists and creators around the world. And two, maybe with AI and machine learning um, methods, but like those are sort of still far, far away. Uh, and we're likely to see sort of combination of the two. Yeah, no, it's, those are really good examples. No, they're, they're interesting and scary. I mean, I, I'm only limited in VR by the, the battery life of my Oculus, but it's, uh, the tech is improving. I, I, I guess on the other side of this though, like you brought up that consumers have control over the algorithm, right? And we've seen a lot of web two issues, right? Like, I don't know, Cambridge Analytica, take your pick. I don't know the best way to form this question to you, but I feel like as people move to web three, they're going to start to uncover all of the like serious control and issues that web two pro projects or protocols like forced on people, right? Like we don't actually know what's under the hood of Facebook because it's not open. We don't know what's going on all day. Do you think that like consumers are going to go to web three and be like, you know, holy shit, I cannot believe how much control like a Facebook had over my life. Or I'm just trying to understand like what the difference is on that side of things. I, I think already a lot of people feel that way. And many more today than you know, two or three years ago or five, ten years ago. Um, and in great part, it's because um, on the one hand, there's a lot more awareness about the role that these social networks and so on and their algorithms play upon um, causing your, your information flow to be shaped a certain way and so that therefore they become grounds for manipulation. Um, and the second part, because I think at least for, for a, a subset of the population on the internet, um, things like Web3 and crypto are beginning to sort of wake up uh, people to those perspectives. Um, my sense is that, like at the end of the day, um, most people will flock to things that are easier and better and, and, and feel more right to their day-to-day -day experience. And in Web2, that meant um, extremely expensively produced uh, user experiences you know, built by hundreds of thousands of people were painstakingly designing an app where, you know, every single little interaction was carefully crafted. And the economics of that yielded the kind of megacorp, megacorp uh, 
data monopoly things. So things like Facebook and Twitter and so on, I think are a result of the interface. Um, just how hard it is to make um, Web2 style websites and mobile apps yielded that structure. Um, my sense is that as people become much more internet native and fluent in using different kinds of platforms and experiences, um, and it becomes a lot easier to create experiences of extremely high quality, um, either by having new economic models to support their creation, so this kind of like the creator economy uh, perspectives, or by just an a much better developer tooling across the board, we're going to see the diffusion of that into, into a lot smaller uh, kinds of environments and less kind of one single large large uh, platform sort of controlling everything. Um, and so my sense is like, it's not that kind of the individual consumer um, is ever going to, you know, face the, the choice of like, do I want to go to, um, you know, the, the Facebook really curated wall garden experience A or, or, you know, TikTok or whatever the next um, social network is, or I'm going to go to this kind of like decentralized thing um, that maybe has like worse UX, but like lets me do what I want. Like that, that's not, not a fight you can ever win. Like you have to have the better UX period. Um, but I think the argument is, the argument I'm trying to make is that it is now becoming a lot cheaper and easier to make excellent UX and that changing the economics of the production of software, changing the economics of how we build these systems and how we build these applications and diffuse them um, will enable a lot more communities to create extremely successful applications. So my sense is that in the kind of um, metaverse environments, you can... Um, Create a, create like much more fluid and and um, high quality experiences jumping from one environment to another uh, that are created by many different people as opposed to forcing all of them to be created by one one party or by one one group. So I think like the and and hopefully that that uh, turns out to be correct. Otherwise the the uh, we're likely to see an even more centralized metaverse uh, it, that is like much, even harder and more expensive to to produce. Uh, so we'll see we'll see what happens but i think we, we shouldn't be expecting people to choose their day-to-day -day application based on how centralized or decentralized it is um people will tend to the, the friction really matters and so people will tend to choose convenience over over security or privacy um until it's too late um i do think that there are still a lot of communities out there that have definitely learned their lesson and now um are willing to use to select certain kinds of applications over others because of security and privacy but the numbers of those communities still in the tens of millions to maybe a couple hundred million. Uh, it's not yet in the billions range. Um, but, you know, maybe a factor of that improvement uh, could really help. I, I definitely think that Cambridge Analytica and that entire disaster um, helped wake up a lot of people to, to the problems. And I think um, this is like a, <laughs> I, maybe I'll just mention this and probably not going to because it's a whole long, very long conversation to have. But um, my sense is that the, computing infrastructure that we've built up until now is so tremendously powerful today that unless we build in the right protocols to restrict control from central parties and um, and establish human rights as part of the code, part of the protocols that run everything, um, that is going to enable um, kind of uh, authoritarian control in certain nation states to the degree that we're like, they'll put 1984 to shame. Um, and so it's one of these like, but it's, it's one of these things where um, you're never kind of like going to win a large audience of people going to use something like this because of this message. Uh, the best you can do is kind of inspire a lot of developers and builders and creators 
to go and build a much better world. Um, and then they can build a kind of great experiences for, uh, for a lot more people. Uh, and so, but, but I do think it's, it's kind of like at that level of importance. No, that, that's fair. When I saw Microsoft's Activision buy, I was like, you know, both felt validated on the metaverse, but also scared that they'll kind of make this in a way that has centralization around it. So definitely fingers crossed. But, you know, one of the interesting things you brought up in your answer was, you know, the experiences developers can offer, right? I, I think as consumers, and I'm not a developer, it's hard to see what that actually looks like. But I mean, developers in Web3 have the ability to create applications that leverage, you know, your data across apps versus having like strict silos in Web2, right? So if you have a social graph in one Web3 app, you know, you could reuse that for another app. And I could, you know, if we're friends on one, I could easily port you to another. There's a thousand examples here. But do you think we've gotten to the point yet where developers are running with these benefits? Because I don't think we're there yet, but it seems like we're maybe on the precipice of that. I, I think we're starting to experiment with it. So I, I'm a huge believer in this, in this kind of benefit. Um, I think that uh, creating an, a computing infrastructure where all these relationships and piece of information and so on are easily accessible to many different kinds of applications and are accessible, uh, you know, sort of as controlled by the user. Um, I think we're, that, that create, has massive amounts of promise and, and we're sort of getting dramatically closer to that. Um, I think the areas where we're seeing this working today, oh, and by the way, like uh, Web3 is entirely about this. So, so th this is, Web3 helps make this a reality much more than Web2 ever did or Web1. Um, and the areas of this where we're seeing it working is in areas where there's, where, where, where the kind of like transaction value is high enough to deal with all the costs. So today, Web3 is still like, um, you know, in, relatively early days, even though it's been a while, um, a lot of the interface is not amazing yet and so on. So the transactions where this really matters um, are transactions that cost a lot. And so therefore, this, things like NFTs are an, an excellent example of this. So people are making pieces of property that uh, refer to something else like a painting or a 3D room or a game or a movie or, some, or a music or a song or something like that. And then your interactions around that piece of content can then be modeled um, independent of the current application you're using to view it. So you could have many different viewers for NFTs, or you can have many different uh, applications built up on top of those NFTs. And so they're making the asset programmable, um, usable by many, many different kind of applications. Um, I think, right, this, this is how likely this is to be used by a lot of systems depends on the transaction cost. So today it's like two difficult to do this for, say, a single, say, follow relationship on a social uh, media application. So today you can't write something like Twitter or Facebook in Web3 yet. Um, the systems are being put in place now, like over the last couple of years and this year and next year, to enable that. And so maybe when the cost drops enough, then we'll see that happen where you have you know, follow graphs and interest graphs that are portable and independent of applications. Uh, this is kind of like a hard question though, because so, mo so much of it, so much of like a social network's um, behavior and interest graph and so on depends upon the user interface. So it's kind of like this hard to question, like, like a Twitter follow graph is not the same thing as a Facebook follow graph, which is not the same thing as a TikTok follow graph and so on. Um, but what we might see is very open versions of these or higher portability where you can maybe replicate some amount of it or have algorithms that work over all of them and say, oh, because you're interested in this content from this person in this platform, you might be interested in the content, their content in this other platform. Um, and so you might see that kind of portability happen. 
Um, maybe around kind of, maybe another example where maybe it's less tuned to the experiences, photos. So, you know, kind of personal indiv individual, you know, um, uh, family photos or like uh, take a trip and take photos of landscape and so on. That kind of use case um, is kind of very famously like super portable. And so that's an area where you can, we should be able to plug in many different kinds of applications over it. Um, so we'll see kind of what happens there. Um, maybe another area where portability really matters is um, we're going to start seeing um, many games work with the same characters and assets. So this is that something that's been a dream in the uh, Web3 crypto space for a long time and maybe even earlier in, uh, in other parts of the internet, but uh, the ability to sort of create characters or use items and so on that mean different things across many multiple games, that's being explored now and I think will be will be kind of a hit in the in, in the long term. Um, I think it's it's going to take a while to like figure out exactly how it works and so on. Um, but this is going to going to enable a a much more kind of robust game economy um, because today like um, the participation in one game world doesn't actually translate to participation in a different game world. So you you get this like super expensive cost of participating in one and not participating in the other. Um, but I, I sort of see think that this will be. Um, the benefit of kind of blending those worlds uh, to some extent uh, will will come up will kind of merit the the mixing. I think monster captures are a great example of where like this matters. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you on on the gaming side as well. And you know, you're talking a lot about like some Web two apps like Facebook and others. One of the things that kind of concerns me is I just don't know how onboarding is going to happen, right? Like you know we talk about Microsoft, we have kind of Facebook co opting their version of Web three, even though there's you know been delays with DM or. I forgot the new name of it at this point. Um, but I, I guess my concern is like crypto as an ecosystem is very small. We do not obviously have the world's buy-in yet or usage. Like how do you envision people onboarding into Web3 without going through the Web2 incumbents and what they will design as their version of Web3? I think this is always just limited by the kind of user on-ramps, which today... You know, things like browsers and mobile app stores. And so today, like those, maybe the more centralized players tend to um, kind of uh, guide user bases in one direction or another because they sort of control those parts of the parts of the computing platform. Um, but my sense is that those modes are getting weaker and weaker every year. So even though they've maybe felt extremely strong in, say, 2005 or 2010, um, I think these days people are much more used to inhabiting the internet. Like most people, um, most people in, in maybe a different side might be like um, probably a few couple, two, around two to three billion people are now on the internet um, or in mobile in some way. And, so, and they're used to dealing with multiple mobile applications and multiple websites and so on, multiple browsers. And so um, there's a lot more people that are totally comfortable switching browsers. Uh, and you can see this in the, in the growth of Rave. Um, Brave has, you know, grown a lot in a very fast, at a very fast pace. Um, sort of surprised a lot of people, um, and uh, I, I think a big part of that is just people's fluency with the computing platform and being able to switch. Um, I think all of this is going to change again once we have new computing interfaces, so AR and VR and um, and others are going to totally change this. It's going to be a totally new landscape. Uh, this is why we should all be very worried about Facebook, um, because they're ahead of the game to AR relative AR and VR relative to most other groups, um, and so we should be pretty wary of um, 
them trying to create like this, you know, pretty bad and controlled wild garden. And I think the the only way to like sort of fight that is to now over the next two to three years um, invest super deeply in creating um, that next set of experiences in a decentralized Web three oriented way. Uh, yeah, and and you know maybe like uh, this is one of the areas where like regular pressure and like maybe breaking out Oculus uh, might be really helpful uh, because Oculus is just such a great experience. I I, I totally agree. No, it's an amazing experience. I mean, you have to log in, so you kind of feel that centralization. And yeah, I'll play devil's advocate here. I mean, I don't think this is the case or it's going to happen, but you know, do you envision a world where the Facebooks and the Microsofts win Web3? Like, like, is there a way or, or a world you see in which you know we fail and they just onboard everyone and it's semi-centralized and they control everything? You know, it's possible. Um, I think at the end of the day, things happen because people... Um, you know, individuals, groups uh, take certain kinds of actions and cause certain things to happen. And there are definitely some pretty large groups with a lot of money on the line to cause that to happen. Um, and, you know, I think like, and so I think it's totally possible. Um, and I think it's going to require significant action in a totally different direction by a different group of people um, to make that not be the case. Uh, the other part of this is like the maybe... Um, the, the galaxy brain move is to actually think about rewiring the economic structure of those corporations themselves. So, so you have to like zoom out and take a step back and think about like, why is it that Facebook creates such a walled garden and forces everyone in there? Is it because like a few people at Facebook are like Machiavellical and are trying to like control everyone's behavior? No, like in reality, like they have like almost zero ability to cause that even if they wanted to. Um, in that at the end of the day, Facebook is a, a uh, corporation run by thousands of people like uh, putting in place certain behaviors and whatnot. The reason they do that is because there is a tremendous financial return behind that. Uh, it's one of the best businesses on the planet. In fact, the best one in the last 10 years. Um, and so if you control, you can understand all the data and monetize it through things like ads and whatnot, um, you, you do so dramatically well as a business that you, you sort of absolutely have to do that. So the um, even if Facebook hadn't existed at all, we would have gotten something else just like it, uh, building a similar business model. And it could have been maybe a little bit better or a little bit worse or whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, that business model existed at the right time and in that in that uh, period. And so I think like the bigger, more important thing to do is to think about rewiring the economics uh, and changing the economic flow. So for example, if um, a, a Facebook truly recreates itself as a totally different experience and its monetary flow is not on advertising or, or control of user data, but say on the sale of land or like virtual land or something like that. Um, and that turns out to be a better business than advertising, um, you know, unclear, possible, uh, then that might cause a dramatic shift in their behavior. And so, and so on. I'm kind of skeptical that that'll happen because Corporations of that size create a culture and that culture has momentum and it's really difficult to veer that off. Um, and so the business would have to be so dramatically bigger and the values required for them to um, get that business would have to be, you know, so starkly different than that or otherwise they kind of, that momentum is going to win out. Um, but I think it's definitely possible. Um, and so I think like 
in this period over the next three to five years, it's pretty important that a lot of groups build extremely high quality experiences outside of those environments in a fully decentralized way using Web3 primitives um, in small um, verifiable interactions. And you build kind of this open metaverse environment um, that kind of can, interact, can connect everybody else. You know, one of the sort of like genius moves, evil genius moves there was renaming Meta, uh, Facebook to Meta. It's so frustrating, right? Because they totally like, you can't say metaverse without Meta. It's like super um, annoying. And so it's one of these things where we either have to find a new a new word. Because metaverse itself got re- like, it's, an, it's a relatively recent word. It used to be called cyberspace. Um, now it's metaverse. Uh, we can come up with a new word and move everybody over. Or we take metaverse back or something. I'm not sure. Um, but sorry, random aside. <laughs> no, that's a that's a great answer. I um I, I totally agree with you, right? I think Facebook would probably be too large to make that uh, big of a transition, right? Like, I mean, their whole business is based on advertising, the regulations, uh, you know, having a stock versus a token. I mean, it would be too large. So I'm kind of bullish on Web three just because it would be so hard for them to to change. What, one thing I wanted to go back to was earlier you brought up a really good point about you know, creating these Web3 economies that transcend borders, right? And, you know, things like human rights and stuff like that. I mean, I'm just having trouble conceptualizing that, right? Like, I'm an American, but like, I'm in Web3. Like, like, do you think people are going to start identifying with Web3 communities instead of identifying with, like, their political beliefs or, or where they live? I'm just trying to get a sense of, like, how people will yeah. identify with Web3 when you have something this great. Again, stepping back and thinking about this over decades and centuries, um, most people's interactions with each other, especially over the last couple of years, thanks to the pandemic, are now happening over the internet in some way, right? So that means most of work is happening over the internet. Most of how people keep up with their families and they you know, write each other over email or Facebook or uh, some other social network or how they meet people, or how they hang out with people and play uh, online games, or um, how they look at houses and choose to buy houses or take trips and travel. Like Just almost every facet of human experience is now being, in some way, either fully fully mediated by computers or partially assisted by computers in the back end somewhere. Um, and so that means that like, we, we've really built the internet as this massive nervous system that's connecting humans everywhere, transcending borders. And borders are this kind of um, thing that we added on top sort of to make the internet kind of make sense with the economies of nation states. But crypto is creating a new jurisdiction layer based on smart contracts and a new economy based on digital assets that are transferable or portable internationally. And so once those pieces, and those pieces are you know, emerging now and, and log- getting logged in now, uh, people's interactions and what it means to work somewhere or buy a house or whatever, all of that is gonna, over time, get turned into internet native equivalents. And like they, they might have like the flavor of it being from a certain region. Like they might have the flavor that it's kind of like the US version of a crypto asset or like the European version, the EU version of the crypto asset or like, you know, the UK gets to like have a fight and like get like their own version of the crypto asset. Um, but the actual rules underneath the hood will all be programmable smart contract assets that'll behave the same way. 
And so they'll be interchangeable in ways that uh, are much more fundamentally important than those international boundaries. And so that means that um, it'll be like sort of like when you think about it, each person and their interaction with other people on the world in the world and around them in a geography or in a city or in their work and so on, um, you, you can sort of like track, you know, how many people from other nations they interact with. And that number is going way up. Um, and that, that'll keep going up unless some, some like, you know, major problem <laughs> geopolitically in the world happens, which is, you know, not outside of the realm of possibility. Um, as the number goes way up, uh, the interaction with each other will at some point sort of like tip over to now suddenly be a totally global citizenry as opposed to a local citizenry. And kind of the, the emphasis and importance of kind of the communities that they're part of will take precedence over the national boundaries, right? So, and, and you can see this very much in Europe. Um, most Europeans that are kind of like, first of all, like they, they, people travel around a lot. People form a lot of relationships with other people in Europe. They move around the environments and kind of like the nation gave way to the union much more. Um, but it was in great part assisted by the internet, in great part assisted by the communities that they formed and the relationships that they were able to form through the internet. And that's, um, I think, like, uh, you think, think of the communities like Reddit, like, and, and how many, you know, think about like a random subreddit and think about like the distribution of people around the world that participate in that subreddit. And um, think about like maybe an individual and like their relationships and where are, where are all those people? And it's pretty rare now that like say 90% of those people live in exactly the same geograph geographical region or, you know, nation state or something like that. Um, that number is like, you know, pr pretty diffuse. And so that means like the, the so, so where, where does kind of like the nation states um, rules um, take place? Like, so they, they sort of like govern the economy and the economic rules around you. They govern what rights you have. Um, and so if we can basically uh, establish proper civil rights globally enforced at a network layer, um, that could be you know, fundamentally super, super useful in, in, in helping achieve this. But, but my sense is, is that you know, there's some possibility here for um, you know, the communities that people participate, <clears throat> participate in taking a stronger precedence than, than um, the, current, the current kind of nation they, ha they, were happen they happen to be born in. And at least that's the opportunity. Um, it, it could be that things don't turn out that way and that national borders continue mattering a lot. And, um, and, and you know, there's certainly a, a, case where, a case for that, but I think it's a dark one. I, I don't see a very positive case for human flourishing in, say, 30, 50 years out where national borders really matter uh, as a good thing. Um, I think they sort of matter as a prevention of a bad thing spreading. Um, and, you know, this might be kind of like a, uh, because I think in computers, you get the ability to kind of create the, the, you know, kind of the ability to experiment with many different kind of rule sets, which is one of the benefits of having many different nations. Um, you get that for free on the internet and you can explore many different kind of economies, many different kind of substructures and so on. And you can sort of have that happening everywhere. Um, and you don't, you don't sort of like need a new nation state for that. You can just like in, create a new instance of a new uh, blockchain network or economic network or whatever and try out a, a set of new rules and de declare what it means to move value from some other economy into that economy and so on. Um, but I think like the, the reasons why nation states will continue mattering is 
um, probably more to do with like geopolitical resources and um, power structures and so on. And, and that's a pretty kind of negative outlook. Um, so I don't know, hopefully, hopefully I'm wrong and, and there's like a, a very positive case there. Um, but my sense is that in, in kind of, if things continue to be really stable and smooth and so on, we might transition into a world where um, we can finally have uh, kind of citizenry in earth and you know membership in humanity um, and, and have that be like the main thing um, and have the kind of the, all these secondary interactions between um, locales and nations and so on be sort of um, still a piece of the puzzle, but like not not as fundamentally important in people's day to day lives. Was I mean enforcing or, or having human rights at a protocol layer for the world would be incredible, right? Obviously, we don't have to you know go too far to figure out the value there. The thing that I'm confused on though is I I mean let, like let's take Facebook as an example again. Like I'm in a a very much an echo chamber of where I grew up and the friends that I added from high school and college, right? Like even debating with our sister high school was a debate, right? Let alone debating with people on a common Web3 platform from across the world or in other states or stuff like that. It seems like that could be strife for a lot of confusion and and much of a mess, right? I, I guess, do you do you envision like, you know, sub economies or, or it yeah. seems like there has to be a lot of differentiation there. Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely the case that um, the internet today encourages many more subcultures to develop, right? So um, there's, there's, a, there's a great talk from, I think, 2016 or 17 or something. Um, it's an interview or sorry, like a fireside chat between Larry Lessig and the, I think the then CTO of Cambridge Analytica. This is before the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So it's like funny to like go back and watch that and listen to the answers and then <laughs> based on what happened afterwards. Um, but, the, but the whole um, conversation ended up in this you know, question around, um, it seems that the internet is enabling all, all of this diffuse um, creation of subcultures and sub uh, communities and so on that have uh, maybe distorted views from the rest of the world and so on and sort of encourages um, that diffusion and that divergence as opposed to convergence. Uh, this is different from, say, the 1950s through 80s, where there basically were like two, two main stories globally, like the, you know, the, the um, Western, the, the West, US and Europe perspective or the Soviet Union um, perspective and you know everybody else was sort of like forced to be somewhere in the spectrum in between them um, and you know news and narratives were sort of like always putting con uh, connected to that and so on and there was kind of a mainstream view um, and you couldn't really stray far away from that um, and so I think like definitely the internet has created this diffusion and divergence um, uh, effect but it's also greatly increasing the knowledge acquisition of most people. And so this is sort of like this race between um, candies, like different subcultures and so on, get so isolated from each other that they can't like relate to one another anymore. Or are the individuals going to become just so capable and they're going to adapt to learning about, you know, how to, how to not fall from misinformation and manipulation and so on. Um, you know, a mix between tools and community moderation and individual learning. Um, that they're actually going to be able to be 
super capable and be able to kind of hop around in a lot of communities and so on. Um, my sense is that while the internet has definitely empowered certain groups, like, uh, you know, think of like, to, to put it out of a sort of like political context, because so, it's easier, uh, think of like the flat earther society, right? Like there's more people in the world today that like believe the flat earther uh, uh, perspective than, than there were, you know, a year ago or something like that. I, I don't know if that's exactly true, but, but it, certainly the numbers in those communities were definitely growing for a while. And that was enabled by the using the internet as a propaganda machine and so on. Uh, at the same time, though, there are the, the number of people that now know like a, a much larger body of math and physics and chemistry and biology and computer science and um, literature across many nations and history of many nations and um, uh, philosophy of many different schools of thought and so on, like the number of humans that now know a much larger cover over all of that knowledge set, um, that, that number is dramatically higher than, than it ever was before. And so while, yes, the internet is enabling a few communities to kind of diverge and go off um, uh, uh, kind of in, in sort of like their own way, my sense is that if you have a pretty good epistemology, you can, the internet, it becomes, makes you super capable of learning much, vastly much more. So I think this is kind of like a software problem. If we can enable, if we can figure out how to how to enable most people in the world to figure out how to distinguish uh, truth from uh, uh, falsehoods, if you can give people a good epistemology of how to know what to know, um, and you can kind of enable them to kind of distinguish that and, and to uh, <laughs> relate what they're hearing and come out with a much better, much more informed perspective of what's true. Um, then the internet is like this phenomenal force for knowledge diffusion that you know has totally unprecedented. And my sense is that it's just entirely a software problem. And what I mean by software problem, I mean it's both a problem in the software interfaces that we deploy, but it's also a software problem in terms of the ideas that people learn about and the, the knowledge that they're given. Um, and so we tend to not instill kind of critical thinking and um, help people learn about how to tell the difference between what's true or not. Um, and I think like that boundary has to be broke. Uh, historically, the reason we've been very hesitant to write a lot about that is because it's very, very, very politically tricky. Um, you end up in, you end up in appeals. So like um, at the end of the day, like you, you end up in like, you know, Descartes second meditation or something like that. And you end up talking, arguing about science and arguing about religion and so on. And so far that's been like really, really difficult politically for millennia. Uh, but I think we're basically at the cusp of that now being a global necessity. And so I think we're, we're going to end up getting to a much better um, way of diffusing good epistemologies. Um, and, and I think this will, this will um, I'm pretty optimistic. I think this will sort of sort itself out. Um, if you look at history and different modes of uh, communication, things like radio and TV and newspapers, even the printing press, they were all used for propaganda purposes at the beginning. Um, and manipulation of perspectives. So um, when the printing presses uh, kind of diffused to different locales, they were used to print political pamphlets and like the, you know, the French Revolution and others uh, were in great, great part aided. In fact, even the, the American Revolution were in great part aided by people's ability to print a lot of pamphlets and then disseminate them and so on. And like, oh man, I read this on a pamphlet that was given to me this morning, so it must be true and must be right and so on. Like you, you, um, you soaked up people's perspectives. And then over time, people learned to deal with that and, and not to leave everything they read and to kind of cross-reference and, and understand and so on. Same thing happened with radio and TV. They were, um, radio and TV were manipulated by uh, the 
different political forces of the 20th century uh, to to great extent. And, you know, the, the ability of a political leader to come and speak to you in your home and to have a chat with you in a conversation was used to help end the depression in the 20s and so on. It was also used to stoke all kinds of uh, problematic behaviors uh, and, you know, some of the worst atrocities in, in human history. Uh, but over time, people leveled up from that and they no longer listened to the voice coming out of the radio with the same degree of, of trust that they did at the beginning and people sort of learned. And so now it's really difficult to then just go around and take over a radio station and now kind of um, manipulate everybody. And so my sense is that the, we're going to cross the thresholds of the internet as well. Like we're, we're going to be able to, um, I think most people around the world are getting much wiser about what to believe and what not to believe and so on. It'll be chaotic for a while and we'll see some ups and flows, but um, I'm pretty optimistic about this. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a cool like historical, like human psychology lens to view this all through while keeping the Web3 context of mind. I'm definitely going to, I'm looking forward to, to thinking about your answer more because it's an interesting one. And I tend to agree. One, just to close out, I, I guess one question I want to ask you, or we might have a couple left to close, is you know, you dropped a really interesting talk that was ahead of its time years ago. I mean, I think it was in 2018, you released a talk called, you know, what exactly is Web3? Um, it's a short talk for those who want to listen. It's a half an hour. We'll link to it. But I'm kind of interested, you know, how have your views changed since that talk? Um, anything major you'd take away or change if you could go back in time? Yeah, uh, it's a great question, and I should go back and, and rewatch that. Um, my sense is that I, I was sort of expecting a stronger emphasis of the values of Web3, and that sort of hasn't happened as strongly. Um, I think at the time I was maybe more pessimistic about... UX and I think the creator economy changes and the NFT, the, the NFT explosion, um, uh, happened much faster than I expected. I expected something like this to happen, but but maybe not on the time scale that um, that I expected then. And I probably expected the infrastructure to get better faster. So in that talk, then I thought that we would deploy a lot of the systems that make Web two scale systems work. Um, certainly by now, and I think a lot of those are still kind of on the horizon. So, you know, today, even today, you can't run the equivalent of an EC2 instance or a or a, an Amazon Lambda or, or Cloudflare worker type thing. And the fact that you can't do that means that you can't build systems like what you can do in Web2. Um, and so once those pieces get unlocked, and I think those are getting get unlocked over, over this year and next year and so on, um, I think we're going to be able to build systems of that magnitude. Um, I think a lot of the other stuff, like rights and um, uh, the importance of like linked data and the importance of linking systems and uh, linking entities and so on, I think it has, has uh, stands the test of time. And and yeah, I think in that one is kind of like where I sort of describe like this read write read write trust um, uh, notion. And so I think like that, um, yeah, definitely like. We'll be interested to see people's take on that and, and see what what um, stays. Uh, it's a good prompt, though, and I think I, I should probably give another talk sometime in in the next year or two or something about kind of like what through from here. Um, yeah, uh, thanks for thanks for the plug. Yeah, no, of course. And I guess my last question for you, and we'll definitely have to do another full podcast on this, and, and we have two on Filecoin already for people to look at. But I, I would love to get your take on how 
IPFS and Filecoin play into your Web3 vision, right? I mean, IPFS is, you know, a network for storing and sharing data. Um, I understand, you know, Filecoin is kind of the crypto incentivization letter. Um, I don't know whether you describe it as tacked on or additional to. Um, I'm messing that up a bit. But, you know, how does IPFS and decentralized storage play into Web3? And I guess my other question for you there, um, depending how you'd like to take it, is, you know, why can't we just use AWS, Google Cloud, you know, IBM for this stuff? Yeah, great question. So um, IPFS is a way to address content uh, on the Internet and be able to kind of find it and, and get it served by anybody else in the network. So this means uh, that you can make a website or a piece of content or an app or the data behind an app and so on be content addressed, meaning that anybody in the network can serve it to you and you can verify its authenticity and use it. And so that means it does not depend on which server serves it to you, meaning it doesn't have to come from an authoritative server. Um, you can verify its distribution um, automatically. And this is thanks to hash linking and so on. And IPFS uses a, a, a format called a CID, a content um, CID or said uh, content identifier that helps you give uh, uh, an ID to every single piece of content ever. And that lets you kind of find all the pieces of content, use them, relate them, and so on. And this is portable. It doesn't depend on any kind of underlying infrastructure. It doesn't depend on um, the storage network that you're using. It doesn't depend on the CDN that you're using. It doesn't depend on the application or anything like that. All the content is portable. Uh, and so it creates a uh, separation between the data and the applications or platforms. Um, and so this is a, a fundamental component of making Web3 work. So uh, in order to be able to decouple um, uh, human interactions and the transactions they have with each other um, and, and their interactions in an application from the underlying platforms or the underlying you know, app developers or services and whatnot, you need to be able to exchange information with each other um, in this totally trustless way. So it's kind of like the same foundational primitive that enabled Git, the version control system, or BitTorrent, or the, you know, the original Bitcoin blockchain, is this hash linking. And what IPFS does is that it makes, it takes that, that same primitive um, and enables it for all content on the web. So that's a very important foundational piece. Um, and you know, lots of different systems protocols uh, address information with with, um, with SIDs and, and so on. So you know, most uh, NFTs out there are addressed with SIDs and you can you know, back them up and anybody can serve them to you. It doesn't depend on which, um, it doesn't depend on uh, who the artist was or what um, NFT auction house you use or what wallet you use or anything like that. As long as the content exists in the network um, and you can find it, um, anybody can serve it to you and the, the application works. Um, this is a really important fundamental primitive. And then separate from that, um, you would like the the, the internet infrastructure, like the cloud, what, what today's sort of like the cloud infrastructure, um, to be able to work and run in the same way that say Bitcoin and Ethereum run, meaning that they run because a network of mutually distrust, distrusting partners um, are coming together and running a protocol and enabling the network to run. Meaning it doesn't matter if one group decides to leave the network the network can keep running, or it doesn't matter that like in one nation, um, one the network gets outlawed or something like that, the network can keep running. Uh, that today is not the case for um, many you know cloud infrastructure providers. If you 
go and destroy uh, some of the corporations running these services, um, then that service will disappear and it might eat your data or it might give you, you know, it might give you a notice uh, and say, hey, you know, you have 30 days to like move your data somewhere else, uh, pack up and leave. Uh, or what's more likely, uh, you might get like banned from using that sort of service in some nation or whatever. And ideally, we can build internet level infrastructure that's independent of, of um, different uh, 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 different regions and different nations and so on and different constraints and enables you to kind of use the system in a kind of a compliant way in that nation um, without having to uh, sort of like resort to corporations or resort to um, having to have like one centralized party providing all of that infrastructure access. So that's where Falcon comes in. So, so Falcon creates a decentralized storage network that lets you take all these graphs of content, all, all this content that you've addressed with IPFS and back it up and store it long term and serve it to an application uh, somewhere, uh, wherever it's required. Um, and so that's, it's, it's building that network internet-wide infrastructure um, for all this content on all of the apps and so on, independent of different, different, what different nations or different groups or different corporations might do. Um, and so you want, you, you need that foundational digital primitive, that internet infrastructure that is built with Web3 um, cryptoeconomics uh, to, to enable that. One of the other uh, really important pieces of Falcon that, that I think is you know, su super important um, is that when you lean into cryptoeconomics, um, instead of kind of like a centrally planned economy within one corporation, you create an environment that enables any party, any rational actor, that can find a way to optimize the system to do so. And, and you make it permissionless. So that means that you can take advantage as a, as a computing network of all kinds of optimizations available everywhere, uh, locally, for example. And so it means that you can use all kinds of hardware that's available. Uh, it means that anybody can join up and add their, um, their hardware or their labor or their support to the, to the network and make that useful, right? So it's kind of like, you know, how did, um, how did Uber and Lyft compete with the existing, um, you know, uh, taxi companies in the world or, um, or, or, uh, different driver networks, or how did Airbnb create a network of, um, compete with kind of like all the different hotel chains and so on, they created a sharing economy that enabled every participant to bring um, their system online and to provide it to the rest of the network um, at a cost. And now the big difference though, between the kind of share, the web two sharing economy and the web three sharing economy is that in web two, you had kind of like a single corporation and a lot of venture capitalists extracting most of the value um, and kind of not instead the um, the house house hosts or the drivers and so on. And this is like the big difference in Web3 and the Web3 primitives that the economic value flows much more to all of the um, participants building the thing or creating the service, right? So, and you can see it in like the distribution of uh, say like in Falcoin in the allocation, right? So it, the vast quantity, like the vast majority of all of the Falcon that will ever be produced will be going to the service providers that are creating the service and running it for um, for the network. And like that, same same with Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin, the vast majority of Bitcoin, um, actually all of Bitcoin ever produced is going to all the people running um, uh, running the network and so on. So it's, so it's like that difference that is going to enable this um, sharing economy environment to both 
optimize well, be much better than any kind of centrally planned organization could ever, and to um, share the, that outcome with all of the participants running running the service. Uh, so yeah, I, th I think um, one of the big things that's coming around this is the ability to compute on the data in around Falcon. So so far, it's been mostly about kind of storing information and backing it up for you and serving it uh, uh, to applications. Uh, kind of like one of the big next uh, things that is coming this year, which is super exciting, is the ability to not compute over the data that's stored in Falcon. So um, one kind of step in that direction is the, add the addition to, of the FVM to Falcon. So this is like the Falcon virtual machine is going to enable smart contracts to be added to the to the um, to the Falcon blockchain. It's going to give EVM compatibility, so you can do anything you can do in Ethereum, but but directly on on top of Falcon. Um, and then that enables the the ability to add computational layers to then run tasks on top of and run programs on top of the data stored in, in Falcon, and you kind of write proofs and and uh, make contracts and applications that now run on top of that, you know, whatever you're adding in the network. And so once you have those pieces in place, then you can start doing um, all of the kind of large-scale processing that goes on in the back end of a Web2 service. So like if you kind of peel under the hood of a traditional Web2 service like Facebook or Twitter or whatever, you know, a, a fraction of it is kind of like the front end that you're looking at. But the vast majority of all of the programming that goes on and all the data um, Processing and so on—it's all in the background. It's all how do you how are you handling your data? What algorithms you're running? What are you doing with those algorithms? How are you using those to provide value? How do you calculate like the feeds that you need to show and and all of that kind of stuff? And so so far that's been limited in limited in the kind of Web three blockchain world. And so being able to compute over the data is like a critical thing to enable. And like that's where that's where we're heading next. Next. Geez, Juan. No, that was a a hell of an answer. There's a lot to digest there. So again, just like your previous one, I'm excited to kind of think through your answer a bit more and to see where we get to, but I'm excited. I want to see the whole stack decentralized, right? I don't want us to be kind of subject to AWS or Google Cloud, and it limits what you're able to do with it as a developer and a user, and I hope people um, understand that, but I think they'll see it once they see um, the capabilities that Web3 apps kind of offer them. So Juan, it's incredible having someone of your, your knowledge and expertise on. I mean, you've been around the space for, I think, a decade is it? 2013, 2014 was protocol apps? Yeah. Eight years. Damn. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's incredible. And uh, yeah, no, just really appreciate your time and having you on and and uh, kind of being the first guest on our Web3 series. So really appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, I had a blast talking about all of this. Uh, yeah. Thank you for doing this. Thanks for spreading the word. Um, you know, I think it's, it's really key to both hear about all that what's happening in Web3 and, and the values behind it and um, you know, really want to invite everybody uh, listening out there to co come and join the the Web three revolution. Um, there's it's still sort of early days in a lot of ways. Tons of amazing applications and systems are getting built out now. Um, and if you need any help getting started, like reach out. Uh, we tend to help a lot of groups um, getting involved in either kind of like um, we run a lot of hackathons that help people get their you know, build their first things, and we um, help give a lot of grants uh, to people starting off building out their first applications and whatnot. And um, we also have a lot of um, uh, have investment networks uh, supporting the creation of new applications and systems. So if we can be helpful, uh, please reach out uh, reach out to us at Protocol Labs or, or the Papa Network. I really appreciate you offering that one. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much.
Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Delphi podcast. If you enjoyed it, please support the show by hitting subscribe on your podcast app, writing a review, or sharing this episode on Twitter or LinkedIn. Stay tuned for our next episode. Out soon.